Hello out there, bibliophiles, and welcome to the first installment of Drew Archives in 10. I'm Andrew Salvati, and joining me via Zoom is Dr. Brian Shetler, Head of Special Collections and University Archives. Brian, how are you doing today? Doing great. Great. So what do you have for us? So today we're going to highlight what is probably my favorite book in our entire collection. Uh, to give the listeners a little background, Drew's rare book collection has about 100,000 rare books and manuscripts, which is very large for a school of Drew's size. And in particular, we specialize in early printed texts dating back to the 15th century. Um, that is a period of early printing in Europe that's known as the incunabula period, which is essentially Latin for in the cradle. It's sort of the birth of printing. And the book I'm going to share today is a, is a great example of what early printing from that time period looks like and, uh, and the audiences that it could reach. Uh, so today's treasure, if you will, is the <laughs> Nuremberg Chronicle. Oh, wow. It was printed in 1493. Uh, let's say a roughly 520-year-old book about that. So and one year after Columbus. Yes, exactly. And in fact, that's an important part of understanding this book. Columbus, we all know the rhyme, sailed the ocean blue in 1492. But what happened is the people who are writing this book don't know that he's discovered anything, quote unquote, at this point. Mm. So their view of the world, what the Chronicle actually shows, is a history of the entire world as it was known in 1493. I see. So what's interesting is you have a perspective that's extremely narrowly focused. It's coming out of Nuremberg, Germany, hence Nuremberg Chronicle. And it's focused mostly on sort of European history and religious and biblical history. The entirety of the book really has a small sort of geographic uh, landscape. And one of the greatest parts of the book in the early stages uh, is its, its first map that appears in the very first section of the book. So once you uh, open this book, you'll notice it's a fairly large size uh, and it's very colorful. Each of the pages has really beautiful illustrations on it in full color. And I'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But when you get through the introductory pages, which are God's cre God creating the heavens and the earth oh, and wow. uh, creating Adam and then Eve. After that, you get to a vision of the world as it's seen today. For them, this would be in 1493. So essentially what we are, what we're looking at right now um, and what we can show you online is a visual map of the world as known to the audience of this book in 1493. Right. So I see we have Europe here and we have a bit of Asia and Africa. And of course, nothing looks like we know it today. That's exactly right. And in fact, it's hard to tell sometimes what you're looking at because uh, I like to refer to this map in a very technical term as squidgy. Because things are not what they're supposed to, what they actually look like. They're, they're what they're supposed to look like. And really the whole world as they know it is just that, Europe, Africa, and Asia. There, there's no understanding of North and South America, right? Because Columbus has not yet returned from his voyage. There's no real understanding of sort of Australia, Oceania, that area. That's an unexplored territory. So what they know of the world really is those three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. And that's important to know as a reader of these texts, because that's the mindset that the readers and the authors are coming from. Very Eurocentric, very much about our world looking outward. So from Germany outward, uh, that's really how they view the world. Mm -hmm. As part of that, one of the accompaniments to this map is a series of small woodcuts that are uh, discussions of and representations of what they call peoples of the world. Ah. So these representations they really appear as a sideline to the map itself. 
and they sort of get demonstrate these sort of unknown peoples that populate the, the earth. In this case, uh, some of them inspired by things like Greek mythology. We have an, an image of a cyclops, for example. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, here of a werewolf, of a man's body with a wolf's head. Um, these are the kind of things that were sort of mythical, but also thought to be real. So for the authors of this book and the readers, these are the kinds of people who would populate the earth in these unknown territories. And what's really interesting is that each of these not only has a really great description and the, um, a wonderful image, they're all hand colored. So like everything in this book, all of the color that you would see in any copy of the Nuremberg Chronicle is done by hand by artists who are paid for, not by the publisher, but by the owner of the book. Ah, so these were commissioned works. Exactly. So what happens is you would buy the book as a, you'd have to be very wealthy to even afford the book in the first place mm. in 1493. You'd also have to be able to read, which um, <laughs> was not a right. huge portion of the population. But then you would take the book and it would be completely uh, black and white. All the images would have been printed in there, but they would all be uh, not colored in yet until you took it to an artist and paid for them specially to have it colored. Oh, wow. And what's important about this particular copy and is probably, I would say, among the most complete copies that are in existence, every single page, every single woodcut, there are about a thousand of them throughout, has color, full color image, every single mm -hmm. page. Uh, a lot of the copies that exist in the world, and there are about 1,300 copies of this book still remaining, uh, I would say less than a quarter of them have complete illustration uh, that are fully colored in. So what Drew has is very special, yeah. Yes, exactly. And it's got a real um, sort of personality to it because of that. No matter who the owner was, they're taking it to a different artist, or maybe they're not coloring it in at all, or they're coloring it themselves. I've seen some versions that looks like they gave it to their kid with a crayon to color. <laughs> so it really changes each, even though it's a printed book, really each copy is its own individual entity, which is really cool. Wow. So do we know anything about the owner of this particular copy? Unfortunately, we don't know anything about the person who owned it, but we do know that it was a copy that was used and read. And we'll, we can tell that from notations throughout the text. Uh, what are what's called marginalia, wow. where people who have read this in the past actually will go through and make notes about certain sections, certain people, moments in history, um, places, things like that. So it's a nice way using marginalia to see that the book wasn't just a showpiece. It, right, it was actually used um, in someone's home and actually read for uh, for to gain information about the history of the world and the world around you. Uh, That's wonderful what, what, because you know readers don't usually leave any marker of their of their practice, right? So for historians, this really must be a great piece. Definitely, and that's a that's a great point. Often we read a book and we put it back on a shelf, or we sell it or donate it, and there's no sort of history of our use of that text. So having marginalia really gives us a great sort of historical record of the use of this book. Um, you can also tell it was used because there are things. Uh, like stains that happened where yeah. you know, maybe someone was drinking coffee and yeah. uh, a little excited about reading about this particular section and, and it spilled. So there is definitely a usage here, but it's still in wow. very good shape and uh, has, considering it's over 500 years old, is in very good condition. Yeah, it's beautiful. Real, it really is. And one of the things which we might be able to pick up on the microphone here, as I turn a page, you can hear sort of a rumble. So that is indicative of paper that's made out of linen. 
Okay. So rather than a wood pulp based paper that we use today, or especially in the 19th century, really cheap kind of newspaper type paper that yellows and gets brittle very easily. This linen paper is essentially made from old rags or old sheets and clothing. And oh, it's wow. very thick. It's very hardy. It'll last a long time. It retains its shape. There's not a lot of um, yellowing that's happening. Right. Because it's such a high quality product to begin with. And you'll find also that even with um, some of the copies, if they haven't been well cared for over time, they do become a little bit more yellowed or, or torn in certain parts. But this particular copy, because it was seemed to be very well loved by every owner who's ever had it, including he us here at Drew, uh, they've taken very good care of it. So there wasn't really a lot other than a few stains, as I mentioned, there's not a lot right. of, sort of damage that's happened to the book over time. So one of the ways you can tell that this was a book that was read by somebody is again, marginalia. And here's, there's an example of it here um, in a section that's about the history of popes. Uh -huh. In this particular area, they're talking about someone named Pope Joan. So this is a, an apocryphal tale. It didn't really happen, but at the time hmm. in 1493, they believed this was real. They dated this story to about the eight, the 850s, so okay. midway through the 800s, that a woman named Joan disguised herself as a man and ascended to the ranks through the ranks to become pope, and was only discovered to be a woman when she gave birth. Uh, she was in a processional and gave birth during the processional, and they realized oh, she was wow. a woman. The story from there takes different angles. Some say that she was just thrown out of the church. Some say she was executed because of this. Um, there's sort of debate what the story what the story was. It turns out it never really happened, but at the time they believed this was true. So they included Pope Joan and an image of her with her baby uh, in the Nuremberg Chronicle. Now, later on, a reader of this text who did not like the fact that Pope Joan was mentioned, tried to erase her image. And there's some, you can see- Oh yeah, I see. Sort of darkness over her. It almost looks like someone took an eraser and tried to sort of get rid of her. And in addition to that, where you can definitely see some damage being done, uh, there's text about Pope Joan just below the image that someone has tried to cross out, um, essentially to oh. say, ignore this part of history. Uh, they didn't like the fact that that story was included. So this is a great example of how we know that a reader had an interaction with this text. Yeah, wow. That's so cool. Yeah, and it's the good thing is they did a terrible job of trying to erase her. We can still see her image pretty clearly. Which, yeah, you'd think that there would be other ways to actually do that. This just kind of seems like a, a lashing out at, at the book a little bit. Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah, the sort of half-hearted uh, erasure of. <laughs> um, but it's a fascinating story, and this is a great example of how reader interaction with a text can change the sort of form and function of the book itself. Oh wow. And then the last thing I want to talk about very quickly is the um, the end of the book. So in 1493, there was a belief that the the end of the world would be coming okay. in the year 1500, oh. which means you have only seven years left to enjoy this lovely, very expensive, very large text. And what they gave you at the end of the history, so it brings you essentially up to present day for them in, in the 1490s, they then give you a series of blank pages that you can fill in your own personal or family history until I see. the end of time. Now, unfortunately for us, no one used this section, so those pages remain blank, but it does give us a, a sort of segue from the end of time, essentially, to what we see here, which is a representation of the Antichrist and the Apocalypse. Oh, wow. That's, that's graphic. Okay. Yes. It is very <laughs> detailed. <laughs> yes. Graphic is a wonderful description. Uh, it's, very, it's very violent imagery. There's a lot of blood and death and My. everything you would imagine from an apocalypse. 
And so it ends with this note of sort of the end, right? And, that, and the best image, probably the most well-known image from this book is the dancing of the dead. Uh, it's a series of skeletons who are rising from the grave and are dancing and celebrating sort of the end of the earth. Oh, wow. And it's a wonderful image as we go into the Halloween season. And here at Drew, we like to celebrate Halloween a lot. Uh, this is a great way to sort of start off that the holidays uh, with these. <laughs> Uh, yes, very appropriate. What a wonderful piece. What a, what a wonderful uh, item within Drew's archives um, to take a look at. That's our show for today. We hope you enjoyed it. If you like us, don't forget to subscribe to the show and check out Drew University Special Collections on social media, on Facebook at Drew U Special Collections, on Twitter at Drew U Archives, and on Instagram at Drew Archives. Share us with a friend, a colleague, a fellow bibliophile, anyone you know who might enjoy the show. For myself, Dr. Andrew Salvati, and Dr. Brian Shetler, thanks for stopping by. Be well, stay safe, and we'll see you next time on Drew Archives in 10.